We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. In the last week of July 1944, units of the Red Army 1st Belarusian Front overran the abandoned site of an SS death camp known as Treblinka. More precisely, the Germans called it Treblinka II. Treblinka I was a labour camp for people that were not to be exterminated on arrival. Vasily Grossman, a non-practicing Jew, was with these Red Army units. He is the outstanding Russian novelist of the 20th century. He served throughout the whole war, known to us as World War II, but to the Russians as the Great Patriotic War. He was a journalist on the Krasnaya Zvezda, the Red Star. It was the official newspaper of the Red Army. But it was also read widely in the Soviet Union by a people anxious to know what was happening in the war. When the Russians arrived at Treblinka II, they found 40 survivors from the camp. The camp had been shut down in August 1943. There was no one who could get eyewitnesses to tell their story like Vasily Grossman could. He immediately interviewed the survivors to learn what they could tell him about what had happened here when it was operating. One mystery that puzzled him was how 800,000 Jews could have been exterminated in a camp which had only an SS staff of 25 men. He found the shocking answer to that question. He called his account of Treblinka the hell called Treblinka. It was later quoted to the Nuremberg International Military Tribunal that tried the top Nazis for war crimes. What I am about to tell you from this article is the most shocking thing that I have ever read. You may prefer not to continue listening. It's a story that needs to be told for the new generations that do not believe or do not understand the depths that human beings could descend to during the time that this death camp operated. It's a story that people of the generation born during or after the war, have probably never heard before as well. It is nothing like what happened at Auschwitz. It is much more shocking. For anyone who has just tuned in, I repeat the warning that I gave earlier in the program that what I am about to tell you from Vasily Grossman's article called The Hell That Was Treblinka is the most shocking thing that I've ever read. You may prefer not to continue listening. It's a story, but that needs to be told for the new generations that do not believe or understand the depths that human beings descended to during the time that this death camp operated. The Holocaust was carried out in three different ways. The Jews in Russia, overrun by the German armies, were usually rounded up and shot on the spot in mass shootings by special SS units. 
as well as by some ordinary members of the German army who helped out. The bodies were buried in masked graves. Jews from Eastern Europe that were first put into ghettos in large cities like the infamous Warsaw Ghetto were more roughly handled. They were sent to the new camps that were opened up. Some were labour camps. They used healthy Jews as slave labour to manufacture weapons and other items for the Third Reich. Typically, these people would be worked to death. Others that were of no use to the Third Reich, too old, too young, too weak, etc., were murdered in the death camps. The Jews from Western European countries like France, Holland, Germany, etc., needed to be handled differently. I mean, 25 men exterminating over 800,000 Jews was a real achievement of this alternative method of exterminating people. So how did the guards at Treblinka do it? The Jews from Poland and other countries were moved in overcrowded cattle cars with appalling conditions. The Jews from Western Europe were moved on different types of trains. Although the name Treblinka had become known throughout Poland and other Eastern European countries, the Jews from Western Europe weren't as familiar with that name. They were told they were being sent east to work. Their trains usually had no guards. The staff on the trains were the usual railway staff. There were sleeping cars and restaurant cars included in the carriages, making up the train. Everything was perfectly normal. The passengers had no idea what the Nazis had planned for them. The passengers usually had large trunks and suitcases, typically with a lot of their valuables. They also usually carried with them enough food to live off for the time that they thought they'd be in transit. Nonetheless, after a while the name Treblinka stopped being used. The passengers were told that they were going to a town called Obermaidan. Not worth using the name Treblinka, just in case they'd heard of it. When the train arrived at the station at Treblinka, the name of the station on the platform was shown as Obermaidan, the illusion of a normal railway station was perfectly maintained. Vasily Grossman asked the rhetorical question whether it was better to know you were heading to your death or only to find out at close to the last minutes. There was a ticket office, a baggage room and a restaurant hall on the platform at Treblinka. There were arrows pointing to other way-off destinations beyond the station, such as Bialystok, etc. When the train pulled into the station, it was greeted by a band playing. The band members were well-dressed in appropriate uniforms for musicians. There was a porter at the railway station. He took the tickets off the passengers. The passengers had had to pay for their own tickets for their death ride. A nice touch. The ticket collector then indicated to each passenger that they should leave the platform and go out into the square outside. The three or four thousand people who had arrived on the train, loaded with their suitcases and other belongings, would gradually assemble in the square. Mothers were holding babies in their arms, young but slightly older children kept close to their parents, gazing around at their new destination. More observant people would notice things that looked out of place. 
disturbing things, personal things that had been dropped but not picked up. How peculiar. Another odd thing, if you were taking your surroundings in, was that the railway track stopped at the end of the platform. It didn't go off to those other places listed on the signboards. There was a six metre high wall nearby. It was covered by pine branches from trees near it and there was a lot of bedding on it as well. Why had people left their bedding behind? Of course, the new arrivals had heard rumours, terrible rumours about Jews being murdered somewhere in the east. But they had to be just rumours. That sort of thing was impossible in this day and age. It took time for all the new arrivals to move off the platform and to gather in the square. There were always handicapped people, very elderly, etc. They took a long time and needed help to move into the square. When everyone was there, the band stopped playing on a signal from the SS Unteroffizier, who was about to address the people. He suggested, the sort of suggestion that you comply with without question, that the people should leave their luggage in the square while they were taken to the bathhouses. They were told to just take their personal documents, valuables, and the smallest possible bag for things that need to be washed. People had questions. Could they take fresh underwear to change into? Could they open their luggage to take some things out? Would their belongings be safe left in the square? But there was a sense of urgency to just go forward to the bathhouses without asking those questions. As they moved forward, they started to pass anti-tank hedgehogs, a fence of barbed wire three times the height of a man, a three-metre-wide anti-tank moat, more wire, this time thin, thrown on the ground in concertina rolls, which would catch up anyone that tried to get through it. There was another concertina roll of barbed wire, this one very high. Now the people noticed that there were SS men all around them, carrying submachine guns. As they moved forward, they passed watchtowers with men manning machine guns overlooking them. It was worrying. Out of sight now, back in the square they had just left, a group of workers, Jewish men, who were going to get to live for another few weeks before their time to die came. They were wearing sky-blue armbands and they started unpacking the suitcases, baskets, bundles that had been left there. They started sorting out what they found. There was a lot of useless things in the bags, photographs that held the dearly loved memories of these people, of special occasions, weddings, bar mitzvahs, family gatherings, friends, parents, husbands and wives, a child's first drawing. These were now just useless rubbish to be gotten rid of. Their owners weren't going to be needing them anymore. But there were some valuable things that could be saved and sent back to Germany. The workers had to work carefully and not make any mistakes. Just one mistake, throwing a cardboard suitcase among leather ones, throwing a pack of French silk stockings still in their packaging, into the piles of old mended socks, was enough for you to be killed. 
The belongings of this last shipment of Jews were sorted into what was worth saving and what was to be buried as rubbish. This sorting would have been finished long before their owners were dead. Now the last shipment of Jews that we're following had reached another square deep inside the camp's fences. There was one large barrack building in this square and three smaller ones on the right. Two of those smaller ones were for the storage of clothes, the third was for shoes. In the southeast corner of the yard was a booth. It had a sign on it which read, Senatorium. A doctor in a white apron with a red cross armband on his left sleeve came out from the senatorium. The frailest and sickest people were separated from the crowd. They were taken into the building. Vasily Grossman said that the German staff there would relieve these poor people from any possibility of catching any further diseases by using their Walter automatic pistols. Their journey was going to end before their loved ones, though not by more than an hour or less. The tone of the relationship between the crowd and the guards now took on a decidedly less friendly tone. The guards screamed out short and rapid orders. Men, stay here! Women and children, undress in the barracks on the left! Things now started to get a bit fraught, a bit difficult. The instincts from maternal, marital, filial love told people that they were seeing each other for the last time. Handshakes, kisses, blessings, tears, brief words uttered by husky voices. People put into them all their love, all the pain, all the tenderness, all the despair. These scenes had to be quickly stopped. Orders were screamed out, Achtung! Achtung! Then the guards called out, Women and children must take their shoes off when entering the barracks. Stockings must be put into shoes. Children's stockings into their sandals, boots and shoes. Be tidy. And immediately the next order. Going to the Bauhaus, you must have your documents, money, a towel and soap. I repeat. Those instructions were reassuring. Obviously, they meant that they weren't going to die. Everything was all right. They'd misread things. A sense of calm returns, replacing the panic that they'd started to feel. For the guards, they needed to keep the people happy a bit longer. They still needed their cooperation. Inside the women's barracks, there were hairdressers. Some girls weren't happy with how their hair was cut and would ask the hairdresser if she would even it up. Only too happy. Whatever kept them calm and under control. The women emerged from the hairdressers carrying a piece of soap and a folded towel that had been handed to them for the bathhouse. The men had to undress in the courtyard quickly and tidily. They had to leave their shoes and socks in order, fold their underwear, jackets and trousers. 150 to 300 of the younger, healthier men were now separated out and taken away, Quite why this was, no one knew. In fact, they were going to be needed soon. They'd usually be killed the next day. Once the women and men had moved on, 
Any clothing and shoes that were suitable to be sent to Germany were taken to the appropriate warehouse. This was a repetition of how the luggage and belongings left in the first square had already been dealt with. Now the next step. Everything had been carefully practised and performed many times before. The guards knew what to do and when to do it. They knew how to do it so that things would run smoothly. But the Jews couldn't help but notice a strange smell. And where were the swarms of flies coming from? The now-naked people were taken to the cash office. They were told to leave their papers and their valuables safely there while they went to the bathhouse. The guards shouted, Achtung! Achtung! They warned that hiding valuables was punishable by death, so don't even think about it. Vasily Grossman described the scene. By the booth stood wooden boxes into which the valuables had to be thrown. A box for banknotes, a box for coins, a box for watches, rings, earrings and brooches for bracelets and documents which no one on earth any longer needed were thrown to the ground. These were the documents of naked people who would be lying in the earth an hour later. But gold and valuables were subject to a careful sorting. Dozens of jewellers determined the pureness of metal, value of jewels, water of the diamonds. And an amazing thing was that the swine utilised everything, even paper and fabric. Anything which could be useful to anyone was important and useful to these swine. Only the most precious thing in the world, a human life, was trampled by their boots. Now that the Nazis had the valuables the way they treated the Jews who were about to die, changed. Rings that were still being worn were tugged off fingers. Earrings were ripped out. Instead of the more polite Achtung, the new word used was Schneller! 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 Quick! Hurry up! Hurry to your extinction! The guards used their weapons to knock the soap and towels out of people's hands. The pretense was over. The Jews were made to line up in rows of five people. Hunt! Hock! March! Schneller! 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 Hands up! March! Quicker! It's almost impossible to offer resistance when you're naked in front of fully clothed, armed people. Now, these 4,000 Jews were ushered into the alley with flowers and fir trees planted along it. The guards called this the road of no return. Now, the guards just wanted to get this over. There was no time to lose. Another 4,000 people would soon be arriving at the station in another two hours, and these people all had to be processed before then. A man whose surname is known to have been Sukomil shouted with a worried tone in deliberately broken German, jokingly, Children! Children! Schneller! Schneller! The water's getting cold in the Bauhaus! Schneller, Kinder! Schneller! Then he exploded with laughter, squatted and danced. The guards lining both sides of the alley were now striking these naked Jews 
with hands up in the air over their heads with sticks and the stocks of their weapons. One giant of a man stood out among all of the guards, a man by the name of Zepf. He specialised in killing young children. A man of incredible strength, he would randomly snatch a child from the column of dews, swing the child around and smash his or her head against the ground. He even tore children in half. His pleasure was his work. This place was manned by the most indescribable sadists and monsters. Zepf helped increase the feeling of terror and helplessness of these Jews, watching someone behaving this insanely. You could be next. Don't rock the boat. Don't stand out in the crowd. It took just 60 to 70 seconds for the Jews to go from the cash office to the building where the showers were. It was a beautiful stone building. It looked like some sort of classical ancient temple. Five wide steps led to the low, very massive, beautiful, ornate door. There were flower pots with flowers by the door. But nearby were the sound of massive excavators. They worked throughout the daylight hours, digging the massive trench mass graves that were constantly then being filled and then covered over, then digging new trenches for the next trainload. All along the road of no return, mad, barking Alsatian guard dogs kept up a constant, terrifying barking. The doors to the temple slowly opened. The camp chief was a man named Schmidt. His two assistants stood to either side of their massive doors. One held a metre-long gas tube in his hand, the other a sabre. At this moment, when the doors opened, the Jews had to do exactly what they were told, quickly and without hesitation. Compliance was ensured by the use of absolute terror. The Alsatian guard dogs were now unleashed by the guards. The dogs threw themselves on these naked, helpless people, tearing chunks off them. One of the Treblinka commandants, Kurt Franz, now appeared. This was his favourite part of the process. He didn't want to miss out on the fun. His Alsatian, Barry, was straining at his leash. He'd trained Barry to attack the genitals of naked people and rip them open, in the case of men to tear off their penises and testicles. The guards now started to beat people more with the butts of their weapons to drive the now totally terrified people inside the building. There were stories of people who resisted, but I haven't got time to talk of them. Incredible acts of resistance, incredible acts of bravery. The nearest village to the site of Treblinka too was Vulka. The inhabitants of the village told how they would sometimes hear the screams of women being killed, so terrible that everyone in the village would leave and hide in the woods where the sounds were muffled. This happened three or four times a day, sometimes five times. One of the guards, captured and interviewed by Vasily Grossman, explained that the women started screaming when the dogs were unleashed, when the Jews were being driven into the building with the butts of weapons, when they knew they were about to die. The doors were then closed. The people packed into the gas chambers at Treblinka had standing room only. Every 20 or 25 minutes, the guards would look into the gas chambers to see if the gas had done its work, 
Apparently younger children, smaller, took longer to die. There was more air for them lower down. Once the guards were satisfied that everyone was dead, the prisoners, those Jews who had been spared immediate death for a few days at least, would go in and begin to check the bodies. Anyone still alive was shot in the head. Their dead bodies were still standing because of the crowding. Their bodies were slowly cooling down. Then the large doors on the other side of the building were opened. The floors in the chamber sloped down towards the railway track on that side. This made moving the bodies easier. Then they were loaded onto cars and moved to large trenches that had been dug. As the last of the bodies were moved out of the chamber, the officer in charge of the process would telephone the officer at the railway station up the line to signal the engineer of the next train that it was time to bring in the next 20 carriages, the next 4,000 Jews, so the process could start over again. It was an enigma how a civilised country like Germany could descend to such depravity. Thank you for joining me, Paul, in the Danger Zone. My next program will not be as terrifying.